From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. And a big howdy to each of you listening in on one of our affiliate stations across North America. And hey to all of you streaming us on the Strange Planet YouTube channel. And uh, those of you, of course, joining us in the YouTube live chat. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes. And I thank you for your fine company. Uh, A quick programming note. Next week, David John Oates. The discoverer of reverse speech. He's a regular. Uh, it's a monthly feature. We bring him on every month and to, uh, to play some reversals. And I just want to remind you that uh, you can meet David John Oates in person. He's coming to Toronto all the way from Australia and appearing at a free reverse speech seminar. I'll be introducing David. That's Saturday, October the 26th at Metamorphosis Greek Orthodox Church. That's 40 Donlands Avenue here in Toronto, 40 Donlands Avenue, just steps from the Donlands subway station. And he'll play some reversals, explain how it all works, and answer your questions. That's from 2 to 4. But before that, at 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., there's a reverse speech workshop. And uh, you can learn basically how to identify reversals. And uh, then, as I say, David will take the stage from 2 to 4. Again, a free reverse speech seminar, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., the workshop, then 2 p.m. to 4 p.m., meet David John Oates, Saturday, October 26th, 40 Donlands Avenue in Toronto, steps from the subway. Hope to see you there. Well, they dressed like women, they sang like men, and they played like mother, well, bleepers. (laughs) Twisted Sister began as a hard-working blue-collar bar band in the 70s that hit the big time in the 80s. And who could forget, of course, their anthemic mega-hit, We're Not Gonna Take It, from the double platinum album Stay Hungry, which turns 35 this year, if you can believe it. And the band's co-founder, guitarist, J.J. French, is with us this hour. J.J., what a pleasure. How are you? Richard, how are you? I'm great. Terrific, thank you. You're in New York tonight. I am in New York, and uh, I listen to your show all the time. I have to tell you, um, I, I mean, I, it's funny because it puts me to sleep every night. I listen to it. Uh, there's, you have a very soothing quality to your voice, Richard. And oh, I you appreciate have, that. You, you have you. the most interesting people. Well, and that's you, why you're on. <laughs> and, you, and you talk to them like, I, I love it, you know, like the guy from the Mars Defense uh, group that that force the Mars Defense Force guy. There you go. Yes, I, I love it because you know it's not enough that he's been on Mars for fourteen years, but that you say to him, "Well, so what did you have for dinner the other night?" It's like, okay, I, I, listen, the world is full of really interesting people, and, and, uh, and, your and you've met your <laughs> your your show features a lot of them. And by the way, my band is considered part of that group of kind of crazies so i get it because people are always asking me questions about my band it's show business isn't it um yes hard to believe stay hungry 35 years old this year and we should mention uh the band is getting together not to play i guess but you're getting together is it down in florida in november to commemorate uh, the 35th anniversary at the end of this month 
Um, so here's the thing. Here's the crazy statistic, Richard. Stay Hungry sold 6 million records, okay? Um, mm-hmm. It's actually a worldwide 6 million. And um, we're not going to take it. And I Want to Rock, the, the other big hit from that album, are the two most licensed songs in the history of heavy metal. They're in more TV shows, movies, soundtracks, movie trailers, and commercials than any other songs from any other band from the from the 80s. And we're honored to uh, have songs that have been that lasting. I mean, we just did a deal this week for a uh, an online um, video game, uh, Slot Machine, uh, with the two songs and the video recreation, uh, animated recreations of the famous videos that have gone on with this stuff. So it's astonishing to me. You it know, is. I, the only thing more astonishing that the fact that Stay Hungry is 35 years old is that I started Twisted Sister 47 years ago. That may be a little bit more astonishing. 1972. Back in the day, you were playing like six nights a week, five sets a night. Let me ask you, because I've read where you said, you know, by the time success really came in the uh, the early to mid-80s, you were kind of done with it. Were you having more fun when you were this you know, this blue-collar bar band in the early 70s. Were you having more fun then or when you were sort of, you know, selling double platinum albums in, in 1984? Well, the life of a rock star or a rock and roll musician, as perceived by fans, the sex, drugs, rock and roll aspect of it, was much more a part of the early days and not a part of the latter days. You know, by the time... The band was signed to Atlantic Records, which was in 1983. Uh, you know that band was a, just a, a straight-ahead, straight-up business or, organization, a company that worked really hard to get where it got, and we just wanted to do work and play. And we never, there was no recreation ever. We never went to parties. We never threw parties. We didn't hang out with other bands because we were older than them, and we had very little interest in what they were doing. We were just, it was the payoff for working really hard. So to answer your question, the band that existed in the bars back in the 70s, well, that band, or that group of bands, because frankly, for those who don't know, the version of Twisted Sister that ultimately made it and became famous. And, and Richard, you know, in Canada, we became huge in, in Canada. Uh, much right. music fell in love with, with Twisted Sister and played our videos incessantly. And our album sold six times the normal ratio of American to Canadian sales on Stay Hungry. So, so we, we, we know that. Uh, that was unusual. But back, but, you know, back in the bar days, uh, the band that made it was the 14th version, right? So I had to live through 13 other versions of the band. <laughs> you know, Ben's brother. You know, so, Richard, you've been on radio for many years, I'm assuming, correct? A few, sure. Yes. Okay, a few. You're probably being very modest. You, you <laughs> About know 20. How long it, yeah. You know how long you have to really work. People don't know how much you truly sacrifice, the crazy hours you keep, especially a show like yours. Um, you've got to take advantage of every opportunity that comes your way. You can never let a chance go by. But when I have people come to me and ask me for advice, I, you know, it was a very different world. Let, let, let me set the stage for you a little bit, Richard. Back in 19, in December of 72, when the band started, Richard Nixon was president of the United States. 
Um, McDonald's had less than a million hamburgers sold. <laughs> Gasoline was 23 cents a gallon. A hotel room was like $19.95 at a Red Roof Inn. You could rent a band house for $300 a month. There were thousands of nightclubs to play in. The drinking age, at least down here, where we are, was 18. And, of course, there was a record industry with which you could plot your attempt to get a record deal. Now, that was the world that I faced. That was the world that I grew up in. That is the world that Twisted Sister grew up in, that you could work right away playing cover songs. Uh, you know, in those days we played Bowie and Mott the Hoople and Lou Reed because we were a glitter band. We, we, we were inspired by David Bowie. And, um, and the New York Dolls. And, and the, the New York well, Dolls. Actually, you know, it's funny because the Dolls, yeah, we were in a way. Um, you know, the Dolls used to play at a place called the Mercer Art Center back in uh, the summer of 1972. And, and one of my good friends, Jane Rabb, who went on to be the producer for the TV show Sex and the City and, and uh, Blue Bloods, Janie was really good friends with Billy and Syl from the Dolls. And she told me in the summer of 72 that they were playing and I should come and see them. And I was, um, I was still a Grateful Dead freak back in 1972. Believe it or not, you know, I was an uber hippie is what I was. I was like a super Grateful Dead, Allman Brothers hippie. And and I was obsessed with the Grateful Dead, and I'd seen them like 27 times. Like 26 times I saw them on acid, right? But on the 27th time, I was straight, and it was like the worst band I ever heard <laughs> in my life. And like, uh, by the way, I know that, that people think that's a joke. I've said that story in our documentary, We Are Twisted Effing Sister, which you know just ran for two years on Netflix, right. believe it or not, um, I got an email from the, the son of the drummer of the Grateful Dead, Justin Kreutzmann, who, said, oh, yes. who, who, who watched our documentary and heard my comment. I saw the Grateful Dead 27 times, 26 times on acid, 27 times I went straight, and it was the worst thing I ever heard. And I get an email that says, hi, this is Justin Kreutzmann. Does that sound familiar? Um, he goes, my dad is Bill Kreutzmann. I just want you to know I saw your documentary. That was the funniest thing I've ever heard <laughs> in my life. So anyway, I was a deadhead, you know. And then, and then by some weird confluence of circumstances, I, I, get, a, uh, I get a subscription to a magazine called Fusion. Uh, maybe, it was, maybe it was a Canadian rock magazine. I don't remember. But Bill Bowie was on the cover, and I look at this, and I freak out. Just so happens at this very moment, which is in August of '72, the Dolls are playing at the Mercer Arts Center, and between going down to see the Dolls and seeing Bowie on the cover, and then buying Ziggy Stardust and seeing Mick Ronson with his blonde hair and the rock star shtick, you know, I said, "Wow, that's what right. I want to be." And I would go down to the, see the Dolls every Sunday. They play at the Mercer Arts Center. Now, I was fortunate enough to be there. You know, I was 20 years old. I'm at, I'm at the Mercer Arts Center every Sunday, and here's a band. The Dolls, and I kind of knew Johnny, um, Johnny Thunders, because I used to hang out in the in Central Park, and Johnny was always hanging out in the park. I kind of knew him, um, and I would go see the Dolls, but they were awful. They were like one of the worst bands I'd ever seen in my life, but <laughs> they looked great, you know? They looked amazing, and I remember a record, uh, a guy, I think it was a record industry guy, uh, 
stopped me as I was leaving the, the Mercer Arts Center one Sunday evening and said, hey, did you just see that band? And I said, yeah, the New York Dolls. He goes, what did you think? I think he wanted to know. He think, I think he wanted me to say, oh, man, they're the greatest thing in the world. You should sign them or something. And I just said, God, they look amazing. If they could only play, they'd be really great. And that was the inspiration behind Twisted Sister, try to look like that, but actually know how to play. So right. Right. I, and that's that's kind of like how that started. And so that first version, I, I auditioned for a band called Silver Star in New Jersey. I got it, I got it, a, a phone number from a guy who gave me a, a, you know, the phone number of the drummer, Mel, and I auditioned for the band. And, you know, in that band, that first version of the band, Richard, was kind of everybody's dream of what a rock and roll band would be like. Uh, we were 20 years old. We were living in a house together. The lead singer was the Svengali, Charles Manson-y kind of guy who had like a real <laughs> effect on, on women. I mean, he was gorgeous looking, not like D, who looks like Sarah Jessica Parker dipped in a vat of acid. I'm talking about, <laughs> I, I'm talking about like a really gorgeous, and I, by the way, D and I are very close, and I introduced him on stage with that description. He has a great sense of humor, so don't think I just like gave up the, the ghost on it. Uh, but, um, but the thing is that the singer at this version of the band, Michael Valentine, was beautiful. And and uh, I was told by the drummer that you could have sex with any girl in the house except the lead singer's girlfriend. And frankly, Richard, I was 20 years old and I was a hippie and druggy and I'd been through a lot of crazy stuff in New York City, but I had never kind of list, list, excuse me, lived in a kind of rock Svengali uh, a house where you could be given women, you know, by somebody if they order them into you. I mean, it sounds, I know people are listening to this and going, well, of course you did that because you guys are all just a bunch of drug addicts, alcoholic, wife-beating, you know, idiots. Truth is, no, but I, I really didn't quite understand this part of the business. And, and I literally, I'm living in a house for a week and this gorgeous girl walks in to my room and uh and we're talking you know for a little while i think i was reading the new york times which i guess was like 20 steps intellectually above anybody else in the household you know so i'm sitting in my room reading the new york times uh 20 years old i'm reading about you know some p political deal and uh this gorgeous girl walks in and uh and we kind of talk for a while and then you know she leaves and the singer comes in about a half hour later and says well how was it i said how was why he said, well, you know, how was the girl? I said, what, 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 what do you mean? Well, you did, you know, have sex with her, didn't you? I, I said, no, we had a conversation. He said, you had a wire? <laughs> what? This will not, said, you will never make it in this business. <laughs> I said, we had a conversation. He said, dude, I sent her in to have sex with you. And I went, trust me, I'll never make that mistake. <laughs> I will never make that mistake again. Don't have to tell me twice. So this was... And then, of course, he was a drinker, and the band was drink. And I never drank. It wasn't my thing, drinking. So I used to preside over this band who was drinking a lot. Now, having said that, Richard, we did work six nights a week, five shows a night. Right. How many, how many uh, lead vocalists did you go through before you settled on young Daniel Snyder, well, later to become happened, D. Snyder? Yeah, what, what kind of happened was, I mean, think about it. We were doing six shows a week, five... Uh, six nights a week, five shows a night. In the first two years, we had played 2,000 shows, 2,000 performances. I mean, this is how you learn how to play in a band, you know. So uh, right. we, we, you know, when bands come to me now and they go, hey, man, I want you to see my band. And I go, how many shows, how long have you been together? Two years. How many shows you play? Oh, I don't know, 50. I said, well, call me when you get to 500. 
500, we'll never get to 500. There's always a good chance I ain't going to be coming to see your band. So, like, uh, you know, it takes a long time to learn how to be good. So, so that version of the band lasted, you know, two years. And then Michael, the singer, and the drummer Mel got into a bar fight. And Michael pulled out a loaded gun and threatened to kill Mel. I walked in and watched this about uh, this murder about to take place, thinking my life is going to pass in front of me and I'm going to be a witness to a murder. It's what I thought was going to happen. But Michael, to his credit, did not shoot Mel, threw the gun down. They got in a fist fight. And um, that version of the band broke up. So the singer and the guitar player, Michael and Billy, they're thrown out. Now we're back. Now we're down to three original guys. Of course, the other two you still don't know. And we hire two, we hire three more guys to replace them. Right, two guys to replace them. And that band stays together for about two months. Then that lead singer who we hired, he had a, I think he was a, had, was a meth addict or something. And he just disappeared, never showed up for a gig uh, after two months. He kind of disappeared. Now we're down to a four-piece. And um, I didn't want to hire another lead singer because lead singers are crazy. You know, they're just crazy. I mean, there's LSD, lead singer's disease. You know, so I figured <laughs> I would take over. That way, at least I could control everything, except that my voice sucks. You know, God created Bob Dylan and Lou Reed so I could do cover material. So... Um, <laughs> The bottom line is is that um, uh, we weren't doing too well with me singing Lou Reed songs and Bob Dylan songs. You know, after we had been doing Bowie and 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 and, and, and Martha Hoople and Rolling Stones and Alice Cooper and all this, and, and the singer after the original singer, he was like a Rod Stewart guy. So I, I couldn't compete. What happened was essentially that man dissolved, and my agent said, "Look, man, you want to you want to um, you really want to make money? You got to do Led Zeppelin." And here's this guy's phone number. Name was Danny Snyder. He's in a band called Peacock, um, and uh, so call him up. And I call him up, and he comes down, and we talk briefly. And uh, I said, "Wow, this could work. You know, I'd like to try him out." And I told this to the uh, guitar player and and uh, drummer of uh, the band that was currently Twisted Sister, and they showed no interest. They said, "No, man, you're doing a great job." I didn't realize at that moment that they were plotting to leave the band, steal the truck, and take my equipment. That was what was going on. Um, so I didn't hire D at that point, and then eventually, a couple of months later, the band broke up. They stole the truck, and the band then dissolved. This is uh, around um, Halloween 1975, at which point, um, I, uh, or Labor Day 75, at which point the bass player and I really thought about this and said, we've got to re rebuild the band again. And at that time, I called D. And D, you know, um, basically, D came in. And auditioned. Um, I'm writing my book. I'm writing the memoirs now. So actually, this is all really fresh because I'm actually writing them right now. D uh, auditioned um, the second week of uh, first week of February in 1976, and he was great. He was amazing. How many I mean, drummers were you going through? Drummers like on Spinal Tap? Well, we did, but at that point. So now, of course, uh, when D joined, we already were on drummer number two. I warned D at the at the audition for him. Don't get too close to this guy because he's going next. <laughs> you know, so we fired the second drummer, which began a tradition in Twisted Sister, which is the tradition's called "Let's go to the diner." And if I ever told you we're going to the diner, that means I'm firing you. Um, and uh, it also means that we've already figured out a replacement for you, so we're going to give you two weeks' pay, and you're not going to do last two weeks with us, like with a super sad face. We're just going to dump you right off the bat, and you're gone. So D ushers out, and a drummer called Tony Petri comes in, and then this band, me and Kenny, the bass player, and D and Eddie Ojeda, 
the guitar player, who was my old high school buddy, and, and Tony and that band worked for three solid years and became famous in the tri-state area. People who saw the band back in the 70s when the band was huge. And Richard, let me tell you how huge it was to give you this perspective. I'm going to, Jay, Jay yeah. I'm going to get you to hold on to that because we're going to take a quick time out. Okay. And we'll come back. JJ French from Twisted Sister, my guest. We'll also open up the phone lines uh, after the bottom of the hour and uh, you can weigh in, take questions and comments for uh, American guitarist, producer, co-founder of one of the uh, great uh, iconic bands of the 1980s, J.J. French from Twisted Sister, right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Welcome back. J.J. French, my guest, guitarist with Twisted Sister, and they will be reuniting for, I believe it's two days and nights later this month to celebrate the 35th anniversary of the band's classic album, Stay Hungry. And uh, that's happening at the uh, the Spooky Empire. That's a horror-themed convention center in Tampa, Florida, it's uh, an exclusive one-time only gathering. Now you're not going to be playing, Jay, right? You're just going to be there and doing Q and A and signing. Uh, Q and A. Uh, it's a meet and greet to see the fans. It'll be the me, D, Eddie, and Mendoza will be together. Uh, we don't get together very often because we're scattered all over the planet. But we will get together and sign autographs. But no, we are not playing. By the way, Richard, I can I, I want yes. a quick comment about your last guest and his statement about the voting inequity issue yes so my mother worked for john kennedy in 1960 as well as many other politicians national and local in the 60s and i was eight years old when kennedy was elected and my mother told me shortly after the election that the election was rigged and over the years we found out the election was rigged richard daly in chicago through voting machines right. in the river i mean this is kind of well known this isn't necessarily yeah, sam Giancana. yes right and this is not me uh, espousing some sort of wacky stuff that nobody knows about this is kind of known between lyndon johnson and and the corrupt way he ran the uh, texas political machine and richard daly whose favorite quote was when you know vote early and often you know that was that's i right. believe that's his favorite <laughs> quote the vote was rigged and nixon was told that the vote was stolen, that the election was stolen from him. From what I understand, he was told, and he was asked what he wanted to do about it, and he felt that it wasn't good for the country. He didn't want to destabilize. Imagine speaking well of Richard Nixon in light of what we have to deal with right now. Uh, we right, actually right. looked fondly at that son of a bitch. Anyway, um, so, so speaking fondly of, of, of Tricky Dicky, he took the high road and said, I don't want to uh, create a constitutional crisis. From what I've read, I, I understand that from what I've read. So that speaks directly to what your friend was talking about. Now, I'm not going to get into the deep state and the manipulation of computerized voting. But, yes, a lot of tricky stuff has gone on. And well, also, as I told you, Richard, when I emailed you, that one of the greatest Kennedy conspiracy specialists is Robert Morningstar. And yes. Robert Morningstar happens to be the brother of two guys that used to play in bands with me. In, in, uh, ah. They're from New York City well, and from my neighborhood, and I've known Robert Morningstar. Uh, I won't expose his real name on radio because he wouldn't appreciate it, but I've known him for 50 years. 
just well, regular listeners to Coast to Coast AM will be very familiar with Robert. He's not a fixture, but he's certainly a, a regular on Coast to Coast. Since you mentioned voter registration, I just wanted to bring up James Cheney because this is kind of an interesting story, very interesting story. First of all, you attended something called the Shaker Village Summer Program. Explain what that was back in the, the summer of love in 67 and then how you became a bunkmate of the brother of James Cheney, who, of course, was one of the three young men murdered, civil, civil rights workers murdered during this voter registration drive in, in Mississippi. You know, I was a kid growing up in New York City, a Jewish kid in New York City, and because of that scene, the scene of an intellectual group of Jewish kids and their parents who our parents were super left-wing, and many of them had been communists in the 40s and 50s, and then eventually left the Communist Party um, after Stalin invaded Hungary and anyway became Democrats, you know. And I grew up in this world, and no one sat me down like Rosemary's baby and said, you are a red diaper baby. But what happened was I would go to these camps. They were called red diaper baby camps. It was the camps that basically uh, had tons of these kids. Most of them were Jewish. Most of them's parents uh, were super left-wing. And Shaker Village Work Group, in the actual location of the Shakers, for those of you who don't know, the Quakers, there's the Quakers, right? There's the Pennsylvania Dutch Quakers. Then there's the Shaking Quakers. They're even more <laughs> kind of radical. And they shook while they were praying, and they became known as the Shakers. And the Shakers had villages and locations around New England. And so one of their areas, which today I think is now back to being a Shaker village, not a tourist trap necessarily, but it's still evocative of the Shaker village ethos of constructing buildings and how they lived, that kind of a thing, like the Amish kind of a thing. I mean, and I don't know if there's any Quakers left, but the Shaker village location still there in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. I was in Shaker village in the summer of 67, which was not unusual to me, and my bunkmate was Ben Cheney. And Ben Cheney's brother, James, was one of the three civil rights workers who was murdered. So while that sounds sociologically intense, it wasn't particularly unusual at the time. I mean, frankly, my first guitar teacher was a guy named Mike Mirapol at another camp called Camp Thoreau. And Camp Thoreau was another one of these camps that were kind of left-wing leaning and my guitar teacher was Mike Mirapol. Mike Mirapol was the son of Julius Nethel Rosenberg, who were executed uh-huh. for right, you know, sharing right. the other bonds. And then, make things even more interesting, my mother uh, was the campaign manager for many politicians, and including, by the way, she got Jerry Nadler pretty much started off, who's you know the head of the Judiciary Committee today. He was one of her protégés back in the 60s. But uh, my mother worked for Constance Baker Motley, for those of you who don't know who she is. She's the first black woman to ever be elected to the New York State Senate, representing Harlem in 1964. She represented the gentleman from the University of Mississippi who was blackballed from the University of Mississippi, and John Kennedy had to bring the National Guardian to have him escorted into right. university. So right. he so she represented him and uh because of that when uh, my mother worked for uh Constance Baker Molly's election we we uh we uh picked him up at the at, in New York City and brought him up to Harlem. So um I have been wrapped up in politics most of most given, of my life. Give, 
given that that lineage, and uh, I think you, you said once that the first concert you ever went to were the Weavers <laughs> at Carnegie yeah. Hall. Why didn't you end up being a folky? Well, because I missed that by because I was too young. So my brother was a folky. Mm. My brother was ten years older than me. So yes, he took me out of the village, and he would play at the Fat Black Pussycat, and he would play at Hootenannies. You know, they were called Hootenannies back then, and right. so so that was big. But you know, I was fifteen when Sergeant Pepper came out, so I was the perfect bullseye for the hippie generation. So right, when I was right. fifteen, it was the great. I mean, think about the albums that came out in nineteen sixty-seven. Cream's Disraeli Gears, uh, Ginger Baker, Rest mm. in Peace, Grateful Dead's debut album, Jimi Hendrix's debut album, Janis Joplin's debut album, Jefferson Airplane's debut album, The Beatles, Sergeant Pepper's Only Hearts Club Band, The Rolling Stones, Satanic Majesty's Request, Buffalo Springfield, Quicksilver, Messenger Service. I mean, think about the unbelievable level of artistry that right. came out in 67, and that was a perfect age for me. Things kind of exploded uh, for me, and I was swallowed up into that. And plus, Richard, I was living in New York City. What did that mean? Well, New York City, when you live in Manhattan, you're only a 10-minute train ride from the Fillmore East. And who was at the Fillmore East? The Grateful Dead. Everybody. Hendrix, <laughs> Zeppelin. Everybody. Right. And how much did right. it cost to see these bands? $3. So you could oh, see gosh. Led Zeppelin four times in a weekend, early and late show for 12 bucks. Uh, you could see Jimi Hendrix for 12 bucks four times. You could see The Grateful Dead. You could see Jeff Beck. You could see Rod Stewart. You could see Country Joe and the Fish. You could see Janis Joplin. So I had this luxury. And by the way, if you couldn't afford the $3, you could see them for a dollar because they all played the Schaefer Festival in Central Park. And if you couldn't wow. afford the dollar, you just hung outside because it was so loud, it didn't really matter. So right, I right. was at the right place at the right time with all the right people. By the way, the gentleman whose name escaped me for, uh, temporarily was James Meredith, who was the first African-American ah, yes. to get into the University of Mississippi. And my mother hired, and my mother uh, brought him up uh, to Harlem to campaign for Constance Baker Motley. So I was at these, at these locations at the right time, at the right place. I was 15, 16, and then when I was 17 years old, um, I was... You know, I was getting stoned a lot. I was playing in a lot of bands. I was an anti-war activist. I was a civil rights activist. And I got thrown out of my high school for handing out an underground newspaper. Didn't you quit high school like a couple of weeks before your graduation to protest what happened to Kent State? Yeah, well, I sued the Board of Education for violating my constitutional rights. And we settled the case and they... And uh, I wanted to go to a different high school and they moved me to George Washington High School in, the, in Washington Heights. By the way, it's a public school, but I'll have you know that Henry Kissinger graduated from there, as did Tiny Tim, as did Golda Meir, crazy group of people. And I went there and I met Eddie Ojeda. But, yes, with uh, two months to go in my senior year on May 4th, 1970, I had met a girl in Bermuda the summer before 969 who was the great-granddaughter of Robert E. Lee, and she was from Atlanta, and she was a year older than me, and, you know, she took my breath away because she said to me, you make a girl's heart flutter like a bird's wing, and that really is toxic <laughs> to tell a New York Jewish kid, let me tell you. <laughs> so uh, I went and lived with her for a couple of days down in Richmond, Virginia, and lo and behold, that was the week that the Kent State kids were killed. And, Richard, I, I don't know how old you are, so I'm assuming you were not born yet. In that uh, yes, I was. Actually. Okay. I was... Yep. You were two years old at the time. Six, okay. actually. Six. Okay, so the Kent State kid. So what happened when Kent State, uh, the kids were shot in Kent State, was there were riots all over the United States. Every college oh. basically was burning, 
and uh, and I made it, I came home and told my mother I'm done with the man screw the man I'm going to be a rock star that was my quote I said I'm going to be a rock star and she said what and I'm thinking to myself oh boy you just put your foot in your mouth like, what does that mean but I proclaimed to her that I was going to and I and I did drop out of high school with two months ago. All right, we'll take another time out. We'll come back and uh, continue uh, to talk all things rock and roll and much more with J.J. French, co-founder, guitarist of Twisted Sister. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. I'm Richard Serrett. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. J.J. French stays with us. J.J., I wanted to just talk to you about, um, you tried out for, it wasn't called Kiss uh, back in the early 70s. I think it was called Wicked Lester or something. But you tried out for the band, right? Yeah, so did a lot of people. And so much was made of it. And it was one of the crazier, sillier stories. But no, I never was in Kiss. But I was one of many people that auditioned for Wicked Lester through, strangely enough, an attorney in my building who I used to babysit for, shows you how small this world is, he represented a producer named Ron Johnson. That producer produced Wicked Lester, and in an elevator conversation with this guy, he said that his client was looking for a guitar player for this band called Wicked Lester, and so he gave me Gene's number, and I called him, and it was in June of 72. And they wanted to see me play, so they, Gene and um, Paul, came down to a church on 12th Street and 6th Avenue, and I was playing in a band called Scout at the time, and the drummer for Scout, Don Perry, went on to play with Jethro Tull for many years. And anyway, we're all 20-year-old kids, and Gene and Paul came down and introduced themselves to me. You know, they said they were in this band called Wicked Lester, and they gave me a reel-to-reel tape of the album, and the album sounded pretty lame. It sounded like the band Looking Glass. If you remember a song, Brandy, you're a fan. Yes, Looking Glass, sure. So that's what it sounded like. And they said, disregard this, it's kind of lame, we're going to get heavy. And they asked me if I heard of a band called Slade. And mind you, this was three months before I became Mr. Glitter Guy, so I was still in my kind of Allman Brothers, Grateful Dead mentality, and I... And they said, we're going to wear, you know, platform shoes, and we're going to, like, get a little weird, and it's going to be like English martial amplifiers. Most American bands didn't play through martials at the time. And um, I was trying to grasp their idea, and I played with them for about two weeks, and it didn't work out. However, flash forward to the following September, they were still advertising, and I called another number in the paper, and it was Gene. He said, no, no, we got a guy, he's great, his name is Paul Fraley. He's really great, and when he's rehearsed enough, you can come down and hear us. So I did. I actually went down maybe within a month after that phone call. They invited me to the loft, and I watched them play their first album, basically, as Kiss, just in T-shirts and jeans. And Ace had just spelled the name Kiss. It was on a bed sheet behind Peter, and it was up <laughs> on uh, the wall or something behind them. And they were Kissified. I mean, they had no makeup on yet, but they were phenomenal and ace was great and i wasn't as good as him at the time they made the right choice they got the right guy they really did get the right guy i never have regretted it ever so i respected their vision they were clear gene knew exactly what he wanted to do like really knew what he wanted to do and it became apparent i saw them in 1976 at nassau coliseum so now we're talking three years later 
And right. it was one of the best shows I'd ever seen. They were fantastic. Let me get your take on a few things here while time permits. And one, I, I, D. Snyder has been pretty vocal. And I think, I'm, I'm not sure if you've weighed in on this conversation as well. And that is, what's going on with the halftime shows at the Super Bowl? Whatever happened to rock and roll? Well, that's a good question, seeing as they play our music at football stadiums all the time, right? All the time. So I think right, but then we get Jennifer Lopez yeah, and we yeah. get Timberlake. These decisions, and made, these decisions are made by powers bigger than us. They really don't like rock music, you know. They really don't. That's not their audience. They should know their audience. Football yeah, fans like rock. We were talking about this last year, and he said to me, "Man, we should do it the 35th anniversary of Stay Hungry at the Super Bowl, and we should do. We're not going to take it. And I want to rock. Could you imagine?" 100,000 people sing it. Of course I can imagine it. Why? Because Twisted Sister does it around the world in front of 100,000 people all the time. So that's not a mystery to us. That's what, um, that's what we, we do. And, and that's what the band developed into a supersized arena act that plays the, our, in our last tour in 2016. The crowds varied from size from 60,000 to 110,000. And that's what we do for a living around the world. And of course it would be great, which is annoying. I mean, it's truly annoying, but you know, Richard, as far as Twisted Sister is concerned, you know, and, and then vis-a-vis devil worshipping and devil music and perceptions of who and what we are and what we have represented, do you know, Richard, that in this 80s there were laws written in the United States to keep Twisted Sister out of certain cities? Do you know Oh, yes. That? You were the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the sort of the test case. Absolutely. There were anti-rock laws that were written to keep Twisted Sister out of certain cities. We were harassed by police around the country. Dee was arrested for obscenity in Santa, I believe, in, uh, in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, they, the cities passed laws with the most ridiculous, cliched uh, jargon that said if you if you committed sex on stage with 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 uh, with infants, uh, dead people, or animals. You couldn't play in a particular town. I'm sorry, Richard. Have I missed something? Has anybody been performing <laughs> sex with children, dead people, or animals that you know of? I certainly don't. Or if you sang songs about having sex with children, dead people, or animals, you couldn't. And so the promoters would not cancel us because it doesn't apply to us. The town wouldn't believe it. They would send uh, their, morals, their morale squad the moral squad to see the shows. I remember we were playing in... in I got, I'm, uh, sorry, J.J., for the interruption. i got to cut away. We'll come back and we'll finish up on that story. Okay. Stay point. J.J. French, back with more in a moment. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We were talking uh, just a few moments ago about... Uh, the uh, the parental guidance explicit lyrics, uh, which was sort of this new rating system that came about, and I'm just trying to imagine this Senate hearing, uh, uh, and they're questioning. You know, we've got Frank Zappa, I think John Denver, and D. Snyder. Were they all sitting together at the Senate he- hearing? I, I'm trying to imagine the three of them. I think there was one after the other. I wasn't down there at the time. Okay. <laughs> but it was, the whole thing was just absurd. All of it was just a joke. And, um, I, you know, this, this one, this one church group came to see us in, in some Texas town. And, and, you know, we did our show. And I remember the guy coming backstage and he goes, and, and, and he's like from some church band. You know, they were supposed to, I don't know, proclaim us immoral or devil worshippers. And he, he comes in and he goes, he goes, you guys curse a little too much, but you're damn entertaining. 
And, and I said, do me a favor, man. Don't tell anybody you like me. I don't need to have like <laughs> telling people that we're any good. That'll destroy your hard-earned reputation of being a misogynistic, wife-beating alcoholic. I mean, really, I don't destroy my reputation. Just tell people that we suck, and let's all just move on in life. So, uh, you know, life is absurd. And, of course, Richard... It gets absurd, right? Because 30 years later, we're a guest of the United States Army. We do a tour of uh, Korea, and here we are with five-star generals falling over themselves to get in photo ops with, with us. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, one year you're dragged in front of Congress, you know, destroying the moral fabric of America, and 30 years later, you know, you can't be in enough photo ops with generals. You know, well, boys, you're great. We love your band. You know, God bless right. America. So you live a long time, Richard, and you see some... Some really crazy things. You, and you've seen it all. Listen, I got to get you, uh, I want to give you an opportunity. Uh, a couple of months ago, we had Sloan Bella on the program and she was talking about satanic influences, Hollywood and, and, and in, in the music business. And, you know, we, we see music artists flashing these Illuminati signs and, and so forth. Uh, did you ever in, in, in your, you know, in your days ever witness anything like that? Richard, I will tell you that when I heard that person on your show, that's why I contacted you. I thought to myself, this is amongst the most absurd thing. Now, I can't speak for other bands, okay? I, I don't know what Motley Crue does, and I don't know what Black Sabbath does, and I don't hang out, you know, with priests and ACDs. Well, it's not true, actually. I know those guys, you know? And they're all hardworking musicians and do people play up things for the purposes of publicity absolutely but not only do i know of no devil worshiping but how about this richard in the five solid years that the band toured internationally with every band on the planet earth that you could possibly imagine every group you could possibly imagine do you know i was offered cocaine one time by a roadie of a band that was it one That's time it? by a roadie. Now, it was notoriously known that Twisted was a straight band. So when you're known as being straight, people tend to not, you know, come to you and offer you stuff. But if it's so ubiquitous and so out there, you would think you'd run across it. And I never saw it. Now, I am not telling you they're angels. I am not telling you people don't have substance abuse problems. I don't tell you that a lot of people are screwed up. I'm not, I can't claim it for these other people. But in terms of Twisted Sister and our world that we lived in, we were a hard-working bunch of guys and all we wanted to do was play rock music and that was really a play metal and go home and and now and be with our families because everybody in the band was married with kids so when d was in congress testifying or, or defending our honor he was probably right when he was thinking he was more morally upright than half the congressmen out there who were probably banging their secretaries and doing blow because we didn't do that. And I hate to bust the people's bubble and go, well, what kind of fun is that? You know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But to be honest, you know, Nugent was straight. Kiss doesn't get high. I mean, right. Some, some right. of us are just straight. Just didn't do it. Doesn't mean we don't disapprove of other people doing it. I never understood how you could be stoned and play. And I fired a lot of guys in Twisted Sister because they couldn't get high. And I used to make a joke and say that um, but alcohol and drugs have no place in rock and roll, only because... It was affecting my ability to make money because you're stoned out. You can't make rehearsals. You're sick all the time. You're not playing your parts right. We have a crazy schedule. We work four or five nights a week, four shows a night in the bars. You can't be stoned. You have to be ready for every show. You have to be in good shape. You can be on stage and act as crazy as possible, but you know it takes a lot of work to be that professionally crazy. 
And no, I never saw any of it. So when I hear stuff like that, it gets me nuts because when someone, when like, for example, there were a kid, a kid got killed in Long Island and the people who did it, one of them wore a Twisted Sister shirt. So of course, oh my God, what do they do? They listen to your music and they want to kill somebody or whatever. And what are you going to do? I mean, they also, guess what? I got news for you. You know, every heroin addict started out on milk. Okay? So really, I mean, come on. Um, and I was a Boy Scout. So what, does Boy Scout lead to uh, heavy metal and then transvestitism? I, I don't know. But the <laughs> fact is, is that we, the blame game gets ridiculous. And we had no part of any of it. I'm sorry to bust people's bubble, but we just never did. Speaking of Boy Scouts, uh, you, you bought your first guitar. What did you you, you sold uh, a bunch of apples? No, you set a record or something? I, it's how cookies, I bought my right? First of course. Guitar, actually, that's I, uh, how you buy. Yeah, I, uh, I sold Boy Scout cookies, and um, and uh, my father convinced me to tell the scoutmaster to give me a ten cents a box um, uh, commission to sell cookies after they threw me out for having long hair. Let's be clear about this. They threw me out, and then they asked me would I sell cookies to raise their quota because I'd sold cookies the year before. And I wanted a guitar that cost 25 bucks, and my father said, we'll go out and sell the hell out of the cookies. We sold 240 boxes. I made $24. My father kicked in a buck because he was a really big spender. And I bought my, my <laughs> first guitar. So, yeah, that is. And you've got Richard, quite a collection done, now. How many? you did your research. I'm really. I'm How really many guitars in your collection, Jake? I have 60 right now. 60. And your prized possession? Well, you know, I have a lot of really great ones. And by the way, I just have to say, because guys, you know, guitar players have guitars, and women tend to have bags and shoes. And my wife has a lot of bags and shoes, and her shoes have sex at night because there's twice as many in the morning, I think, when I get up <laughs> than they were the, the night before. Anyway. But my guitars are valuable. The guitar I love the most. Uh, are you a guitar player, Richard? Uh, no, no, I am okay. not. So I play. I, have, I play on the radio. Okay, I have some very valuable guitars, but the one that I cherish the most is a 1954 Gibson Les Paul Jr., which probably cost like 90 bucks new, and it and I've owned it now for 35 years, and um, it's built in 1954. It's almost as old as me, and, uh, and and I'm looking at it right now in my room. It's the only guitar I keep out. And I love I love playing it, but I don't take any of those on the road with me. I usually play Epiphone Les Pauls because they play great, and I don't care if my roadie has a fight with his girlfriend and throws the guitar down the flight of stairs. So <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me. But, uh, yeah, my 54 Les Paul Jr. For guitar players out there who are listening, my 54 uh, Gibson Les Paul Jr. is my favorite guitar in my collection. Fantastic. And what about the Pink Burst, the Pink Burst signature guitar? Well, the Pink Burst project, uh, I have a Les Paul that was painted pink by uh, a luthier in Long Island in 1978. became a signature guitar of mine. It, it's on every album we played. And um, I created a, uh, a project called the Pink Burst Project to raise money for um, a hospital that, that specializes in, in, uh, in a disease called uveitis, which is an eye disease that my daughter has, which is the leading cause of blindness among young girls at least in America, I know worldwide a lot of people have it. Um, she was diagnosed at age six. Uh, luckily, she was diagnosed at an early age by a fluky eye exam in school. Um, the the disease is not curable, but it's it's controllable and it can go away by itself. The uveitis is the name of the condition. U v e i t i s. Uveitis. It's not U V rays. It's the uvea, which is the middle lens of your eye. It's like arthritis can, of the eyes, and and can you give money. us a website for that that yeah, project? Yeah, if you go actually, if you go to pinkburstproject.org, 
you'll see me talk about this disease. And we raised a lot of money with the Pink First Project, which was a project in which I got 25 musical companies, guitar and amplifier companies, to do a color-matching guitar to raise money and awareness for you guys. And I appreciate that, that you bring it up. Because my daughter, who is 26 and about to have a baby, I'm about to be a grandfather. Oh, fantastic. As a matter of fact. Pink First Project. Uh, Dot org. Pinkburstproject.org. You will JJ, learn about uveitis. Uh, JJ, what a pleasure. I hope you'll come on with me again sometime. Richard, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Like I said, I, I love your show. I listen to it all the time, and I really enjoy it. Thanks so much, buddy. I appreciate it. JJ French. My thanks to uh, Owen Wolf and uh, Ryan White. Back next week with a brand new show. Good night. <laughs>